You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So as we move along in our series through Ecclesiastes, we come to chapter 11 this morning, and we're just looking at the first six verses. You heard it, a very short passage compared to what we've been doing through this series as we near the end. And as you you heard, as you read this and you heard Marie read, I hope you picked up on a repeated theme, a repeated phrase that gives us the theme of this text, four times In six verses, Solomon tells you and I how much we don't know. Did you catch that? Verse 1, you don't know what disaster might happen. Twice in verse 5, you don't know the way of the Spirit. You don't know the work of God. And in verse 6, you don't know which will prosper. So jam-packed in these six verses is a clear theme uncertainty. There is so much you and I don't know. And this is, I think this is hard for us to hear because we live in one of the smartest cities in the world, right? Boston is is on every top 10 list of the smartest cities. We love to talk about how much we know. We have the highest concentration of colleges and universities. The brain power in this room is insane, Sometimes I talk to some of you guys and you tell me what you do and I'm just like, I'm nodding my head. I have no idea what you're saying, right? We're smart people. If, if, if there was a badge of honor for the city of Boston, it would be knowledge, right? Yet, all of us have to come to grips with this reality that though we know a lot, there is so much we don't know. And life is extremely uncertain, especially as we look to the future. You might know a lot about your field or have a degree in this or that, but you have no idea what this next moment holds for you, what's going to happen this afternoon. You have no idea what path your career could take. You don't know how that relationship will, will turn out. You don't know whether or not a pandemic will ruin two years of your life, right? You don't know when or if The economy will crash or thrive. And think about it. How great would it be? How many times have you thought, wouldn't it be great to have a guarantee that all of my plans would work out just the way I planned them? Who wouldn't want that, right? It would be awesome. I think that's why those money-back guarantees are so successful. They think, okay, how can we eliminate the unknown risk for people? Well, it's simple. I'm just going to guarantee you that our product will satisfy. And if it doesn't, you get your money back. Right? That's the guarantee. And, that, and that's great. And listen, Amazon affords great money back guarantees. I took advantage of one this week. Right? But we know that life affords you no such policy. It is uncertain. And this uncertainty, this is what Solomon is speaking to, this uncertainty, if we're not careful, can be quite paralyzing, can it? Because the natural response of our sinful hearts in the face of uncertainty is to hunker down and hoard 
everything we can for ourselves and, and play it safe and eliminate all risks, right? After all, we don't know when disaster may come. So Solomon knows, God knows, that the default of our hearts in the face of uncertainty is to live by fear, not by faith, right? So we turn inward in the face of uncertainty. Yet Solomon shows us this morning that there's a, there's a better way. So he's, he's confronting us with the uncertainties of life, not to instill fear, but to encourage faith in our hearts. So you see there's, there's two ways to really tell somebody that they're ignorant, right? The one way is to show them how much they don't know, to sort of shame them and make them feel dumb. That's not what Solomon's doing here. The other way, and this is the heart of God for us, the other way is to, to confront somebody with how much they don't know so that they can discover something greater in the midst of their ignorance. And that is what Solomon is, is aiming to do here for us. And, and think about it. He's been doing that through this entire book of Ecclesiastes, hasn't he? He's been showing us our limitations that we may turn to the God who has none. That's Ecclesiastes. The limits of our knowledge and the reality of uncertainty, they can actually be a good thing for us if they drive us to God who knows all things and works them together for our good and his glory. Solomon's driving us in that direction this morning. So the simple call of these six verses is this. In the face of uncertainty... Don't be paralyzed by your lack of knowledge. Instead, Solomon says, take every opportunity to live generously, take risks, and trust in Christ. Right? That's the call for us this morning. Three things. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. Here's where we're headed. Number one, life is uncertain, so live generously. Verses one and two. Number two, life is uncertain, so take risks. Verses three and four. And then number three, life is uncertain, so trust in Christ. Christ, verses 5 and 6. First, life is uncertain, so live generously. Look with me again at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, now these two verses, especially verse 1, this is one of those uh, passages, those verses that commentators have friendly disagreements over what Solomon means here. And to our ears, this just, this just sounds strange. Let's just start by acknowledging that. Other than feeding geese at Hardy Pond, why would you throw bread in the water, right? And why would you want it back? It's all soggy and nasty, right? By the way, you're not supposed to feed the geese anyways. It messes up their migration pattern and keeps, they, they poop on the baseball field. So please don't do that, right? But that's kind of like the only comparison in my mind that, that when I read that verse, and, but there's two real main interpretations of, of what Solomon means here. One is, is to say that he's talking about business, as he's talking about casting bread upon the waters. So thus, in, in that sense, casting your bread upon the waters, giving your portions to seven or eight, it's, a, it's a, an illustrative way of saying diversify your investments. Right? Talking about, really, um, international trade. Right? After all, you don't know what's going to happen. When disaster comes, you'll be more financially ready and you, because you didn't put all your eggs in one basket. That's sort of one stream of interpretation of what this, this verse means. And that, 
I think that has some weight, and that's a true statement, by the way. Especially when you consider someone like Solomon, who himself was a master of business and international trade. But I don't think that's what Solomon means here. The other interpretation, and this is what I think Solomon's getting that, at, is seeing, when he says, cast your bread on the waters, he's talking about generosity. He's talking about giving. That's why he uses the word give, a portion, in verse 2. So that seems to be the primary meaning. It's very similar to Proverbs 22.9, which says, Whoever had a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shared his bread with the poor. There's, there's also, we also see this metaphor not just in the Bible and used by Solomon, but we see this elsewhere in ancient poetry at the time. So Egypt, in, in the Egyptian proverb, for example, says this, Do a good deed and throw it into the flood. When it subsides, you will find it. Or another uh, Arabic proverb says, do good, throw your bread on the waters, and one day you will be rewarded. So in this sense, which is what I think Solomon means, he's saying, listen, life is uncertain. You don't know when disaster will come, so live generously. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? In verse 2, he says, give, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Now, that number seven in scripture is the number of completion. So when he says to seven or even to eight, you put this together, what he's saying is, listen, life's uncertain, so give generously to the nth degree. Right? Now, again, we naturally do not think that way. We think the opposite, right? This is very counterintuitive. We naturally think inwardly when we consider the uncertainties of life. If, if we were to write verse 2... We would say, gather all you can to the nth degree because you don't know when disaster is going to strike. So be ready. And Solomon's certainly not disparaging wise preparation, but he's calling us to a different way. Outside of our natural tendency to turn inward when we face the uncertainties of the future. Do you guys remember the Y2K panic? Raise your hand if you remember that. Some of you are too young. Google it later, right? There was this fear. It's, it's hard to even talk about it without laughing now. Um, there was this fear that as we entered the new millennium, right, from 1999 to 2000, and that number change from 1999 to 2000 would, like, throw banks and computers into this, you know, it would shut everything down. Society would crumble. And as a result, people started, like, emptying out their bank accounts and, like, burying stuff in their backyard and, ho like, hoarding things. And to be honest, as a teenager, I was scared. I was, like, hiding water in my attic. My mom's like, what are you doing? Right? They were preparing because disaster may come. And doing so by hoarding, right? And then January 1st comes along. No problems at all. Everybody's fine. And a lot of people, myself included, feel really dumb. Right? But that's our impulse. Disaster may come, so let's get what we can. Let's hunker down. Let's hoard. And Solomon says, no, no, no. We don't know what the future holds, but God does. And as we trust in him, we're then free to live generously with our resources, with our money, our time, with our very lives. And listen, friends, that looks foolish to the world. That is why I think Solomon used this imagery. Just as it seems foolish to throw your bread on the water, so it looks foolish to live a life of radical generosity in the face of uncertainty. 
But friends, that is the way of the gospel. This is not just Solomon. This is all throughout the pages of Scripture. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. And as he talks about this, as I read this, I want you to listen to what Jesus diagnoses as the main problem in our hearts. It says, And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What am I going to do? The future's coming. I want to be ready. He says, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. I'll hoard more. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus tells this parable of this person who's hoarding things so they'll be ready for the future, right? But they're not rich towards God. But do you hear what he says? He takes that tendency to sort of get all we can, and he diagnoses the heart problem. He says in verse 15, this is covetousness. A heart that wants what we don't have, thinking it will protect us from harm. And when we live this way, like the man in this parable, we're plagued with anxious hearts. This is why Jesus commands his disciples. He turns to them after telling this parable and says, therefore, do not be anxious. God will cover those things. You are rich towards God. And there is freedom in that. If our, if our treasure is in heaven, if we're rich towards God, where no, no future disaster can tarnish it, we'll be free to give of our lives for his glory and for the good of others. That's the, that's the gospel logic of this. And notice, Solomon says, listen, if you cast your bread, if you give generously, there will be some sort of return. Verse 1, you will find it after many days. Now, this doesn't mean that every time you give or serve that you're automatically going to get something tangible in return, right? That's sort of the lie of the prosperity gospel, sort of just sow a seed, give to the church, give to this, and God will automatically bless you. No, God's not an ATM machine. That's not what Solomon is saying here. That would make generosity transactional and self-centered about us. No, Really what Solomon is saying is getting at this idea of what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Those who live generously by faith are rich towards God. That's the principle. Now in practice, you may say, okay, that's a pretty general principle. What does that look like for me? I think it's different for each of us. right? Depending on how God has blessed us and provided for us. I will say that when we talk about generosity... Mainly, we tend to think only about money, but we have to see bigger picture here. The currency of generosity is not just about finances. We're to live open-handedly with our time, our skills, our possessions, our lives. Right? 
So this involves you getting with God, prayerfully considering how God is calling you to to live generously even in the face of uncertainty. Asking God to reveal that tendency to covet in your heart, to be anxious, to hold on to the things of this world. Whether it's financial or some service to those in need, whatever God is calling you to, regardless, the ultimate question for you and I is this. Do I trust in the God who holds my future? Is he my greatest treasure? If so, friend, live generously in the face of uncertainty. That's number one. Number two, life is uncertain, so take risks. Look at verse three. If the clouds are full of rain... They empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So while we don't know when disaster will come, verse 2, there are laws of nature that we can't observe. Solomon's pointing these out here, right? When dark rain clouds roll in, we can make an educated guess that it's going to rain. Likewise, trees fall all the time, and where they fall, they lie. You can observe it, you can't, do, you can't control it, but you can observe it. And this may seem strange to us, it's just like very obvious things that Solomon is pointing out. But remember, Solomon's first audience was very agricultural. So when he's talking about these things, he's, just not, talk, he's not just talking about the weather that we can look up on our, our apps. He's talking about the workplace, right, where they live their lives. Most people worked outside planting crops. So Solomon is saying, listen, as you go about these things, the point is this. There are risks involved. The weather could destroy your crops. A tree could fall on your head. There are so many potential things that can happen to ruin your plans and to destroy your livelihood. So Solomon is saying, In verse 3, but let's try and put it in our own modern categories. Think about it this way. What if the degree I'm working for doesn't get me that job? It's a risk. What what if the market continues to take a turn for the worst? Or here's a big one that's common in the Bible when talking about risk. What if I tell that person about Jesus and they ridicule me in response and that relationship is over? Friends, whatever it is, there are risks involved. And Solomon says to this in verse 4, he says, He who observes, you could say anxiously dwells, he who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you and I live our lives dwelling on all the potential what-ifs, we will be paralyzed. We will never move forward. And if you're paralyzed by fear, you'll never take the risks. And if you never take the risks, you won't experience the freedom and joy of a life lived for the glory of God. You can't eliminate all risk in your life. So there are two options when it comes to risk in the face of uncertainty. You can either be paralyzed by this fear or you can walk by faith, which means taking good, godly risks in your life. Just to give you a few examples of, of what this looks like. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. In 2 Samuel 10, we read the story of Joab. 
Joab was the commander of the Israelite army under King David. And in this chapter, he, he's in a, a little bit of a bind. He and his brother, Abishai, are leading the army, but they're surrounded. The Syrians are on one side, okay, and the Ammonites are on the other. They're teaming up against Israel. And it doesn't look good, right, from a battle standpoint. They're overwhelmed, they're surrounded, they're outnumbered. So Joab and his brother, Abishai, they make a plan. Because planning's important, right? So they plan for what they're going to do. That's wise. And, and Joab's suggestion is this. Okay, we're going to split the army in two. And half of them are going to go with you, Abishai. And the other half uh, on one side and fight this army. The other half are going to go over here. And listen to what... Joab says in 2 Samuel 10, 11, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come help you. So that's the plan. Verse 12, here's the risk. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Right? Hear that? There's risk involved. They, they didn't cower in fear. Yes, they made, they made a plan. They were wise. But Joab's saying, I can't know the future. So I'm going to take this risk of faith. The Lord do what seems good to him. And God's grace, he delivers him. Here's another one. The great risk taker of the New Testament, by the way, is the Apostle Paul. I mean, just every page, right? Some of you who are like risk-averse, reading, reading uh, Acts gives you like a, you know, a, a heart palpitations, right? But this is who Paul was for the glory of God. In Acts chapter 21, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver money that he's collected for the poor there in the church there, right? So he's on a mission. But on his way, he, he stops in Caesarea, and there's this prophet named Agabus, and he prophesies of Paul. And here's his warning. Acts 21, verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet, this is Agabus, and hands, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So in other words, Agabus, through the Spirit, says, Paul, this will happen to you if you go. It's a warning. And Luke, who's writing this, says, verse 12, when we heard this, meaning Luke, Agabus, all the other Christians around him, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? Now I want you to stop for a second and ask yourself, what would you do? How would you respond if you were Paul in this situation? Now, I'm just going to confess, as someone who is risk-averse and like my besetting struggle is anxiety over the future, I'd say, listen, Agabus, thank you. You helped me dodge a bullet. Caesarea is nice. We can hang out here for a while. There's plenty of ministry here, right? Especially when beloved friends like Luke, all these other people are pleading with him. That's not how Paul responds. Because Paul knows that God is sovereign in the face of uncertainty. And he is willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Verse 13, this is how Paul answered. 
what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's like the Braveheart scene of the New Testament, right? Yes, yes, it's risky, but there are risks that are worth it. There are godly risks in the face of uncertainty for the glory of God, in this case, for the good of the church. I'm willing to walk into them. And here's what Luke says, verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, this is very similar to Joab, right? Let the will of the Lord be done. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Friends, that should be how we walk into risks. This example from, from my life pales in comparison to Paul and Joab, but I was thinking of this this week. And from 2012 to 2015, our family prepared to move to, to greater Boston from the Atlanta area to, to do ministry, to do church planning. And for the most part, you know, we raised money, we, we were trained, we had a plan. And for the most part, I mean, I'm talking like 98% people were supportive. People were excited because in God's gra- by God's grace, we're surrounded by people who love gospel ministry. But there were some who did not understand. After all, this is risky. And the common theme for us was, especially with all those kids, right? You know? It's cheaper to live in the South. You're closer to family, right? There's plenty of, you know, medium-sized to large-sized churches where you can get a decent salary, right? Have a comfortable life of ministry and just sort of go through life. And listen, many people are called to that and there's needs elsewhere. But friends, we sensed a call to Greater Boston. Because God was at work here and we wanted to be a part. So we took this sort of step of faith. And in God's providence, I was finishing a, a seminary class called The Life and Theology of Paul. So I was confronted with this guy who had like a few screws loose for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And God used that to, to, to push us here. And we took that step of faith. And guess what? My plans did not work out the way I planned. Right? Man plans his way, but the Lord puts forward his steps. And so we came here. We had a plan for, to plant one church. That didn't really come to fruition like we thought. We closed the doors there. Served his purpose for a time, but God in his providence led me to this loud Italian guy named Clint Patronella. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and our families became friends, and, we, and, and we, we looked back and realized God was orchestrating something. We had no idea. And, and as I look back over the years, I think, man, was it hard? Yeah. Were there moments of fear and anxiety? Yes, absolutely. But friends, I can honestly say this. This is not just like a preacher thing. I wouldn't trade it for the world, right? To have a front row seat to see what God is doing in our region. That's just a small example of stepping out in faith in the face of risk. See, friends, we don't know what the future holds. But we know this. Think of the imagery that Solomon is using. Storm clouds can ruin everything. Trees can fall. Careers could blow up. Relationships could turn out the way they, the, the economy could crash and crumble. Persecution for the church could, could increase. But do you know who is sovereign over every storm cloud, every raindrop, every falling tree, every disaster that you and I will face? Our God who is good. Right? Therefore, we can step out in faith and take risks for his glory.
Now, we're not talking about, I feel like I always need to say this when we're talking about risk. We're not talking about rash decisions, living presumptuously. There is such a thing as foolish, self-centered risk-taking. I'm going to make this happen for myself. James warns against this in James chapter 4. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, now listen to this. This is Luke, right? This is Joab. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it is you, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, godly risk-taking is motivated not by self-centeredness, but by God-centeredness. John Piper, Piper describes this, I think, beautifully. He says this, The power and motive behind taking risks for the cause of God is not heroism or lust for adventure or courage or of self-reliance or the need to earn God's goodwill, but rather faith in the all-providing, all-ruling, all-satisfying Son of God, Jesus Christ. The strength to risk losing face for the sake of Christ is the faith that God's love will lift up your face in the end and vindicate your cause. The strength to risk losing money for the cause of the gospel is the faith that we have a treasure in the heavens that cannot fail. The strength to risk losing life in this world is faith in the promise that he who loses his life in this world will save it for the age to come. So brothers and sisters, we should ask ourselves, what risks is God calling us to take? It may relate to your career, it may relate to schooling, tough conversation that needs to be had, whatever it may be, however big or small, maybe entering into someone's messy life to help them, all those can be risky. I'll tell you this, it most certainly means taking steps of faith to bring the gospel to those who don't believe. That is the chief example of risk in the New Testament. Friends, whatever it is, don't be paralyzed by fear. Instead, walk by faith and take good godly risks. Number three, life is uncertain, so trust in Christ. This is last in the text, but this is the... This is the, the the branch from which the other two vines flow out of. Verse 5, as you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So Solomon moves to another metaphor here. He's using this Picture of life in the womb to show us that we can't fully know God's ways and thus we can't do what he can do. Even now with our advanced medical technology, right? We can see more, we can understand more, but we can't replicate the creation of human life in the womb. God does that. He's God and we're not. And this God is the creator, Solomon says, the maker, not just of life but of everything. If you'll notice, this is the, the, verse 5 is the only explicit mention of God in this passage. Solomon, in the midst of, 
you know, this repetition of how much we don't know, emphasizing the uncertainty of life. It's as if he's now saying, let me, you've been looking in and seeing your ignorance. Let me now draw your attention upward to God, the maker of all things. Here's what you do know. That God, the creator, is indeed working despite our ignorance. And friends, this is the constant pattern of the Christian life, right? We look in, we see our insufficiencies, we see our sinfulness, we see our ignorance of God's ways, our limitations, but we're never meant to stay in that place of introspection. That's never God's intention. We're always meant then to look up and see God, the maker of all things, the object of our faith. I think that's what Solomon is doing here. Here's how much you don't know. That needs to hit you hard, but you can't stay there. You need to look upward to the maker of all things. This is the pattern of our liturgy. Each, every single week, called a worship and a confession of sin, are meant to show us the greatness of God in contrast with our sinfulness. Right? Then we're looking inward, we're confessing our sins. But you know how, how hard and burdensome it would be if we stopped at the, the confession of sin? What do we do after that? We always look up to Jesus and are assured of our pardon in him. We don't stop by looking inward. We look upward to God. And by faith, we exhale right? a sigh of relief and we rest in the sufficiency of our maker. That's what Solomon is pushing us to. Our maker, our all-sufficient one this morning. Simple question for you and I to ask. At this moment, are you resting in the sufficiency of your maker in the face of uncertainty? Where is your rest, your hope? What or who are you leaning upon? And friends, this language of of God as the maker of everything that Solomon brings in, it draws our attention outside of this one passage to the whole story, doesn't it? Doesn't it draw our minds back to Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first man and woman enjoyed perfect relationship with God. They were entrusting themselves to him. Everything in the universe was good until Adam and Eve rebelled what were they doing? Among other things, they were clamoring for control in the face of uncertainty instead of trusting God. And that is our problem. And God has been pursuing us ever since, which comes to fruition in his son Jesus, whom God sends, full of grace and truth, power and perfection, humility and holiness, to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And Jesus dies for our sins on the cross and he he bears the punishment we deserve and he rises again on the third day in demonstration of his power over sin and death. And just as God raised Jesus to new life, he's making all things new. And friends, here's that future. In the end, God's people, all who receive Jesus by faith, will live forever in God's presence. That future is certain. That's the story that the maker of all things is writing. And just as Solomon wrote to to Israelites who were, were facing uncertainty, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome on this very subject. They're uncertain. They're anxious about what's going to happen in their future. Specifically for them, in Romans, it was about persecution and enduring for the sake of Christ. 
And of course that's anxiety-inducing. And do you know how Paul encourages them? With the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 32. By the way, in in the new year, we're doing a, a sermon series just through Romans 8. But listen to this. I'm probably over speaking, but these may be the two greatest verses in the New Testament. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is how Paul addresses the uncertainty of God's people. Paul's answer to the question, what do I do when I face the uncertainties of life, is this, look to Christ. You hear that logic? God, the maker of all things, the creator, he didn't spare his most prized possession, his own son, Jesus. He put him forward. He gave him up to die and rise that you might be brought back to God, securing your future with him. If God has, this is the if then, if God has done this, won't he also give you everything you need to endure the uncertainties of life? Won't he also give you all the power you need to live generously, not anxiously, to take godly risks, not to live fearfully. Yes, he will. He will graciously give you all you need in abundance. Therefore, life is uncertain. Trust in Christ. That's the logic. And friends, this truth, this living by faith in Christ, not by fear of the future, this took the New Testament church by storm. Their lives were marked by radical generosity. After all, he'll graciously give us all things. How could we not be generous? They were marked by taking risks for the sake of the gospel, bringing the message of salvation to dangerous and hostile people and places everywhere they went. After all, why wouldn't they? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? They sowed the seed, Ecclesiastes 11.6, even though they didn't know what or when or how they would reap. They trusted Christ. And what propelled them was not their intellectual prowess, or some guarantee that their plans would work, what propelled them and freed them to live for God's glory in the face of uncertainty is the same thing that will propel you and I today. Faith in the crucified, risen, ascended, reigning and returning Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing is more sure than that reality. So friends, let me implore you, trust in Christ as you face the uncertainties of life. As, as fear and anxiety creep in regarding the future, rest your head upon the pillow that is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let us as a church in our insufficiency, in our ignorance, lean upon the sufficiency of our all-knowing Savior. Then, from that faith, may we live generously, take risks for the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray together.